We're going to be in Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 33 through 36. And uh, what we're doing tonight is we're, we're going to be studying a New Testament worship song. And we're, 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 actually, we're also going to learn a, a very important Greek word, very complicated word. I'm going to work with you on that one tonight. And then I'm going to talk to you about what it really means to lose your life for Christ because uh, there's almost a paradox about the idea of losing our our life for Christ and and what we gain in return. But I think it'll all tie together in the end. And we've got a lot that I want to cover, so we're going to dive right in. So uh, read together with me in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Here's our worship song. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, this is what we call a doxology. How many of you are familiar with with that term? Anybody ever heard of the term doxology? Yeah, several of you here. Uh, a, a doxology is a formal state, statement, something like a poem or a worship uh, song, or it's a declaration of God's glory. You're speaking of God's glory because the the word, the first part, the word doxa, comes from the uh, the Greek word that, that just means glory. Uh, that's that's what it means. And then the suffix ology can mean either the study of something, but it also can mean simply something spoken like a speech or a proclamation. So the word doxology refers to a formal spoken word about God's glory. So, you know, we probably, <coughs> excuse me, you, you, you probably have heard of the song, just a moment, <coughs> you've heard of the song that we know as the doxology. And, uh, you know, it says, you know, the one, praise God from whom all blessings flow, Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise praise Him above, you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's called, we call that the the doxology, but truly it is a doxology. Uh, There are probably quite a few songs floating around the same title. So what we just read read here, this is a worship song, but it's just without the music. And I think we can learn a lot as we study this passage. But what I want to I want to talk a little bit before we get into the actual verse by verse portion. I want to talk about some other things because I, I want to talk a little bit about biblical worship because uh, it, it's sort of a, it's still a hot topic in in today's Christian world and and there's a lot of things out there in the worship world that are just not biblical. Um, and I think we need to talk about some of these things. But I want to start by saying this. I want to point this out. I believe that we should both think and feel our worship. Uh, worship is multidimensional because humans are, are multidimensional. I like the way Warren Wiersbe put it. He said, worship is the response of all of man to all of God. All of me is responding to all of God. So worship is, is, is all of me, uh, heart, soul, mind, strength, all that I have responding to all that God is, uh, who he is, what he has said, uh, what he has done. And I'm responding to all of those things. And I think that's a good description of really what worship is, which means that obviously it's more than just singing a song because it's a, it's a full response. But I also think that means that, that I both think and I feel worship. It's not one or the other, it's both. 
Now, now, now uh, personally, I think what we do is we, we tend, as human beings, we tend to gravitate, depending on how we're wired, towards one side or the other. <clears throat> we tend to either be feelers or we tend to be thinkers. Uh, like, you know, and, and then what we do is the feelers sometimes look down on the thinkers and they say, oh, you're just dry and emotionless. You just don't get it. And the thinkers look down on the feelers, say, oh, you're just all emotion. It's just nothing but emotional hype and all this kind of stuff. But in reality, th- those ideas should not be pl- uh, playing against each other. It's, it's as though you're, to me, it's like you're trying to choose between being a good parent or a good spouse. Well, how about both? You know, I think it's good to be good to do both. Maybe we should be doing both of these. The, the thinkers should be learning from the feelers instead of marginalizing them as though they're missing out. And I think, you know, saying, no, you're just, uh, you, uh, maybe we should be saying, you know, you, uh, 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 you're, you're seeing something that maybe I'm missing out on. Uh, uh, maybe there's something I can learn from this. The feelers should look at the thinkers and say, you know, Maybe I need to get past just the emotion and I need to think about what's going on. I need to learn something from you. We're, we're all different parts of the body and we're all wired in different ways and we all respond to God's presence in different ways. I think that's really important to remember. Um, and, and that idea of that we respond in different ways because we're wired in different ways. You know, some, there, I know many people that are very emotional in the presence of God. But you know what? I also know people that are very quiet and reserved and they have just as powerful a moment in the presence of God, but there may not be a visible uh, emotional response. But the person's emotional should not be able to should not look at the other person and say, "Ah, oh, you just you just not even responding," because it, it's just not it's just not the we're just wired differently. You know, on the thinking side of things, I want to talk about that a little bit. We we should consider deeply our worship songs. You know, I love songs that that ponder deeply the the greatness and the majesty of God, and I I love songs that are born you know right out of Scripture. Uh, in fact, the truth is, um, we we need to evaluate all other worship songs very carefully if they're not right out of Scripture, because we need to use the Scripture as as our plumb line for truth to determine those things. Sometimes. Honestly, there are some songs out there that we need to uh, look at that song and pull a verse out because without the verse, it's really a great biblical song. But, but, or maybe a song has a great chorus, but the verse is just slightly heretical, you know, or something like that, you know. And people say, I love this song. Let's sing this song. But you ask them, have you ever listened to the words? And they say, well, no, not really. I haven't really listened to the words. But perhaps we should consider that and compare it with Scripture before we sing it and before we ask the church of, of God to sing those words, because I believe God wants our brains as well as our hearts. And I know I'm generalizing here, but just to make a point, the, the feelers, you know, perhaps they don't want to think about these things too deeply because they're, they're afraid that they're going to lose the feeling side of things. But I want to tell you this, I don't believe that you will. I don't believe you will lose that. In fact, if you do this properly, it will enhance those feelings. I, I, they need to realize that if, if I'm not feeling, maybe, uh, or, or excuse me, I need to say this. Sometimes thinkers, on the other hand, uh, they, they almost delight in not feeling, saying, oh, you know, I'm just detached from my, it's not just emotional hype. But I think maybe they need to be, be realizing, listen, if I'm not feeling something in this, maybe there is something I'm missing out on. 
Uh, because the truth is we're all broken people and we all, we're all missing something, right? As, nevertheless, just don't marginalize other people who don't see the world and respond to God the same way that, in which you respond to him. But I would say this, getting back to the thinking side of this, beware what worship songs you choose to sing. Be thoughtful about the worship songs you choose. Because, because worship, and, and maybe, I don't know if it's more so today, maybe it has been always a certain amount, uh, uh, the, the case, a certain amount of things, but it seems like especially today, worship is one of the main ways Christians learn their theology. Uh, they're learning it, and, and some of our worship songs, worship writers are good theologians, and some of them are not. But if we're learning our theology for that from our from our songs, we need to pay attention to the songs that we're singing. And, and I mean, you'll you'll find people, and you'll see this. I've seen it on Facebook. I'm sure you have too. You'll find people quoting worship songs to get them through hard times, and you know, or they're quoting worship songs to answer questions that they have, and they quote them almost as as if as though the worship song itself was scripture. You know, you know. Now, personally, you know, when I'm singing a worship song. Very, very often, I, I find myself, myself thinking of Scripture. You know, I think, uh, what Scripture does this come from? What, what Scripture supports this song? And I really think that's a very good, healthy habit to, to have. Because when you do that and you know where it comes from Scripture, now you can sing it with all of your heart and with all of your mind. Uh, because we've got to understand, if something has words, it's communicating something. If a song has words, it's communicating something that the writer, particularly if it's a worship song, that the writer of that song believes to be true. All right? Now, if it's an instrumental song, it's communicating feelings. But if it has words, it is communica- communicating ideas and concepts. So it's important that as we sing about those ideas and concepts, that those ideas and concepts, it's important that they be real, that they be true, that they be biblical. Uh, and I, w- I would say this, if a worship song cannot stand without its music, if it can't stand just lyrics alone and be worthwhile, then why are we singing it? You know, if you can't quote it, uh, just the lyrics and gain something from that, then why, why are we singing it? You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke fun. You know, maybe if you love this song, then then uh, um, you have to forgive me because Jesus says you have to. But you know, we, we that song, I'm trading my sorrows, where you get to the chorus of it. It's very deep, isn't it? Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. You know, honestly, is that, it, where, where is the value? And, I, and I'm, you know, if you love that song, I apologize, but... Uh, well, I sort of apologize, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I'm just saying that sometimes, see, that, that song is really more about trying to get hype going rather than to get you thinking about God, or at least that part of the song. Uh, may, maybe the verse part is good. That's why I'm saying that sometimes it's one part's good. So I, I would say, just say, we, we need to be discerning. We need to be thinking about what we're singing and, and asking ourselves, is this actually scriptural? Does the Bible teach this or not? Okay? 
And, and, and I want to add this, though. While we should be discerning of the worship, worship music we listen to, and especially music that we choose to bring into the church for us to sing, we, we must not, in the midst of that, become hypercritical, because I, I see that a lot. Uh, and I would just say this, in regards to, to all of these songs, you know, if you love a song, listen, all I can say is, love God more than you love the music. Love God more than you love the music. And, and, and so that you have the guts to say, even though my heart is attached to this song, even though the music moves me emotionally uh, and, I, and, I, and I'm attached to it because of how it makes me feel, I realize that it's not biblically solid, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that go. You know, and, and maybe you're in a church in this, in this situation and you're, you hear a song and I've had this happen many times in my life where I hear a song and maybe it's the first time I've heard it or maybe it's one that I've heard before. But, uh, you know, I just look at the lyrics and I think, ooh, I, I don't know about that. I just I just don't like the way that lyric hits me. I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. I would say at that moment, don't just, you know, you don't need to get hypercritical and get upset and get angry at the worship leader or whatever. Just Just don't sing that lyric. Just don't sing that part. Don't, don't sing things that you don't mean. Uh, and, and sometimes in worship, I don't sing certain lines of certain songs. Or, or I might sing it differently. I might change the words a little bit, sometimes unintentionally, if they don't have the words on the screen. But, uh, but I, I would just say in that moment, don't sing that line or sing it differently. Or maybe just raise your hands and spend that time in prayer. Uh, but, but don't become hypercritical and judgmental in that moment. But just... Be thoughtful about the lyrics that you sing in your worship because, uh, I mean, you look at the types of songs that, that are in Scripture that you see there in the Psalms and, in, and there are several songs found in the New Testament, including the one we're looking at tonight. And these songs are, are deep. It's theology mixed with heartfelt praise. And that to me is, is powerful worship. Now, I want to just say this. I want to add this here because... You know, there's this, there's this uh, thing I- I- that happens oftentimes that, especially for people my generation or older, and they say, that's why we, ought to, we should be singing those old songs, you know. Well, we should just be singing hymns. <clears throat> well, I don't think this means that we have to just sing old songs. That's not my point at all. I, I like many old songs, and I like to sing old songs, but, 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 you know, there are people that think that new song equals lame song, or New song equals shallow song. And I've heard people mock and ridicule modern worship bands for having shallow songs. And then I actually look at the lyrics and I think to myself, that's actually profound, uh, profoundly biblical and deep. And someone was studying theology when they wrote this. So, so sometimes, you know, sometimes we just think it's new, so it's shallow. That's not always the case. But also I want to say this. That, that while there are many powerful, deep, theologically sound old songs, there are also some old songs that are just as shallow as many of our modern worship songs. So it's not about the age of the song or the style of the music. You have to ask yourselves, what do the lyrics say? Are they biblical or not? That's what matters. And we need to consider songs and, and look at them and consider them biblically. You know, some people... Uh, you know, that's the intellectual side, the, the thinking side. But some people avoid the intellectual side, but we shouldn't do that. Some people may tend to avoid the feeling side. But I, I think you, you should stir your heart uh, to love uh, the, the Lord in worship as, as a deliberate act of worship to God where you're stirring up your own heart in praise. Now, I'm not talking about faking it. That's never acceptable. 
But if, you're, if you've ever been married, you, you know that you can stir your heart in love toward your spouse. How do you do that? You begin to think about them. You begin to think about what they've done and their, their faithfulness and how they have served you and, and who they are. And, and you can begin to stir up those things in your heart again by thinking about that. And you can do the same thing, I believe, with, with the Lord. And, and uh, I believe I can stir up my own heart in love towards the Lord, the Lord as well. Now, that doesn't, you know... Uh, it, 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 and when we talk about feeling and the stirring up, I'm not, I'm not even necessarily talking about emotional butterflies because I believe if you really mean it, then you're feeling it. Uh, I'm talking about the depth of commitment that goes into the, into our worship. So with that said, let's look again at Romans 11, uh, 33 through 36. This is the song. Let's read it again, get it in our minds. Then we'll look at it verse by verse. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Now, what inspires this moment of praise is theology. It's a spontaneous thing. Paul, the, the, the way he writes, he goes into these, uh, these spontaneous moments of worship, but it's, but it's not like he's like ADD, you know, he's like, hey, squirrel, you know, and just gets distracted in the moment, and then he just throws this worship moment out randomly. I think what's, what happens is he, he, he feels the seriousness and the wonder and the goodness of all the things that he's writing, and then, and then he just gets to this point where he's, he's really about to transition, but he just says, oh, Praise the Lord. God is so good. And he just takes a moment to reflect on that. Don't miss the point. It's about God's glory. It's about God's amazing, wonderful goodness that we're seeing. Now, now we just spent several weeks studying topics in Romans 9 through 11 uh, that, in which a lot of people are just simply not interested I understand that. We've been looking at the theology of it, the deep meanings of it, and, and it has led to this moment in time for Paul uh, to worship. And I think that, that, that people who focus on theology should automatically walk into worship. I believe worship flows naturally out of theology. As you, as you plumb the depths of God's glory and His goodness and His mercy and His justice and His holiness and His righteousness and His power and all that He is, it should cause you to be moved to, to worship Him, especially when you, can, when you begin to understand that He's all those things, but at the same time, He loves us dearly and He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. I mean, that's amazing. This, that's not just a dry, dead theological point. And we've studied some things about which some people don't really care much. So, but, but what's the payoff? What, how does Paul get from all of that theology about Israel and the Jew and the Gentile and all of this stuff about the complicated way in which God revealed the gospel and, and the mystery in Christ and all of that? How does he get from there to worship? Well, let me just summarize some of these things very quickly. Uh, in Romans, we've learned uh, so far as we're, as we're pulling these threads together uh, to this time of worship and response, we've learned that, that mankind is universally sinned and, and has fallen short of God's glory. Okay, so you're not worshiping yet, right? Uh, that's, that's not the part that inspires you. That's the bad news. That's the part that kind of scares you. So, so mankind is universally sinned. 
But God uh, brilliantly brings Jews and Gentiles together in Christ under this merciful gospel message that we're all saved by grace. Um, and so uh, we, we know that. He, he uses the Jews. He, he, he uses the, 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 the prophecies. He uh, uses them, the Jews for the, to, to lay the foundational work for the Messiah to come and, and then to show the mystery revealed that, that I can be saved by the grace of God simply through faith in Jesus uh, and, and we go through all these things and, and that, that we're all saved by grace and we have these eternal blessings. We have this eternal life through Christ by faith. And I feel sure that we're all going to be even more excited about when we get to heaven. Uh, you know, it sounds pretty amazing now, but I don't think we fully understand the, the depth of it. So we have this gracious God and, and uh, uh, full of love and grace and mercy and people are fallen, but God's reaching out to them in love saying that whoever's willing to receive him and and, and, and I mean, it causes you, to, causes you to think about the patience and the love of God. And so Paul, uh, uh, of, of course, he just says, look at God. He says all of these things, look at God. Look, look at the depth of the riches and, the, of, and wisdom and knowledge of God. He did all of this to show us his love and grace and mercy. He did all of this to bring us into an eternal love relationship with him. And this causes Paul to worship. And I want to say this, if theology doesn't cause you to worship, you're doing theology wrong. Because you're making it all about just getting head knowledge. You're doing it wrong. If your study of theology doesn't lead you to worship, then listen to some different theologians, read some different theology books, or maybe just read the Bible and let yourself respond to the theology that you're learning. It's not about the head knowledge. It's about responding to what you've learned. Because until you respond, you're not getting it. It's, it's a difference between I know and I know. You know? I mean, someone says, God is good, and you go, I know. Well, you're not getting it. Somebody says, God is good, and you go, oh, I know. Now you're getting it. It's hitting you not only in your head, but it's hitting in your heart. Have, have these things hit you in your heart? Have they moved into the place of, uh, it moved you into the place of uh, praise and worship? Uh, but let's look at these, uh, these verses, verse by verse. Verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, I want to start by teaching you a Greek word like I promised early on. You ready? Everybody ready? You're going to learn a Greek word. Ready? Now, I'm going to teach you how to pronounce this in Greek. And I want you to repeat it back to me. Are you ready? Here we go. Say, oh. There you go. That's it. <laughs> You've said it. The, the, it's the same word in Greek and English. Oh, and it functions in Greek and in English the same way. What you're doing with that word is that you're injecting emotion onto the paper. Paul is saying, oh, the depth of the riches. Not just look at the depth of the riches, but oh, look at the depth of the riches. And what is it that makes Paul say, oh, well, it's the depth of the riches or the exceedingly great value of two particular things, God's knowledge and his wisdom. Now, knowledge and wisdom are similar, and sometimes they, they're used somewhat interchangeably, but they're not identical. Knowledge is just knowing information, knowing things. God knows everything that will happen, everything that, that could happen, everything that is happening, every variable, every fact of life. He knows all of this stuff, so... So knowing that, when we look at, God, at God's plan, we see 
how he has factored in everything in life, in his plan. Now, now, and, and to think about this, we're not just talking about your life, we're talking about all of humanity, the entire universe, the entire plan of history. God knows everything and he has all of that figured out. Imagine, however, if God had all of that knowledge without wisdom. Like he, he knew all these things but didn't know what to do about it. Now, I, I realize it'd be impossible for God to be less than he is, but, uh, but wisdom is knowing how to do something well. I, I, I like to say from a human perspective, wisdom is skill at living life. That, that's wisdom. You, you don't just live life, you live life well. You live it skillfully. And I, I think this speaks of God's plan. God knows all of the variables of reality, all that will happen, but he also has this wisdom in how he crafted the world and how he set everything up and how he, how he interacts with mankind to, to bring about certain purposes that are of eternal value. In this case, we see Christ, we see the Jews, we see the prophecies, we see being united together in him. So, so we see that God has a plan. You know, that God, God's not doing damage control. His plan is not doing damage control. You know what I'm talking about? He's not you know, reacting to what happens in life and he's, where he's like, oh man, I, maybe if I do this, that we can, we can make things a little better. But rather, uh, there is a divine purpose and plan that's being carried out that has been known from before time. Wis- wisdom is knowing how to do things, uh, do something well. It's knowing what to do with the knowledge. So, so I, I think when you understand God's wisdom and God's knowledge, that, that he knows every factor, including the, the stuff about which you have no idea, and he has a beautifully wise plan. When you understand that, then you, then you understand the idea of trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not to your own understanding and in just acknowledging him in all your ways and letting him direct your path. Because, because I've got a newsflash for you. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to have everything. You don't have to know everything. Have you ever heard the old phrase or saying something similar to this? Have you ever heard somebody say, the older I get, the smarter my parents become? You know what I'm talking about? It's because as I get older, I start to realize that they did see some things that I didn't see. And now as I'm getting older, I see those things too. I mean, it really happens in life, doesn't it? Well, the older I get, the smarter the Lord becomes. You know? More, more accurately, I should say, the older I get, the more I realize the depth of his wisdom and knowledge. You, you know, in the Christian life, you never, ever graduate beyond walking in faith and trusting God with the results. You, you never get past it. It's never going to happen. We get to a point in our lives where we feel like everything is functioning in a way that makes sense to us and then something comes along and upsets the apple cart and suddenly we're like oh yeah oh yeah I forgot I have to walk by faith don't I Um, you never get beyond this you never get past this we're always going to have to live our lives trusting God and trusting in his word because the one who knows all things and is wise beyond measure said trust me here's how you do it and we know that God's wisdom is right in, in all areas of life and when I let my heart and my mind respond to God's wisdom and knowledge, if you actually stop for a moment and seriously think about this, he knows everything and he has a plan for it all. Then 
I can have peace. I can have peace. I can have peace because he's, he's a good and wonderful God and he's got all this stuff figured out and I don't have to figure it out. I can rest if I'm in him. If I'm yielding and I'm surrendering to him, I can rest. Now, if I'm not yielding to him, I, I can worry. But how can I doubt God? Knowing his knowledge and his wisdom. Quietness begins to come over me when I understand his knowledge and his wisdom. Let me, let me read to you Psalm 131. It's a really, really long psalm, three verses long. But I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read two-thirds of it to you. Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty or, or arrogant. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child I am content. I, I become that humble little child where I'm, I'm just not going to worry about all that stuff. Have, have you ever stopped and think about little kids getting in the car with their parents? You know, they get in the car and, and they really, they have no idea where they're going. You know what I'm talking about? Or, or if they do know where they're going, they're, they just don't worry about how they're going to get there. They don't worry about the, the proper streets and that, they, that their parents are going to turn on. And you, you say, where are you going? Well, I don't know. I just know I'm with mom. Where are you going? I don't know. I I'm just know I'm with dad. And sometimes that's a really beautiful picture of, of, of life with the Lord. Where are you going? I don't know. I just know I'm with the Lord. Well, how are you going to get there? I don't know. I just know I'm with my father. So, so there's a calmness com that comes, a peace that comes when I realize that God has complete knowledge and perfect wisdom. And, and in hard times, when you know that, you'll have hope. And you'll see a good God. And not only that, not only, not only will you have quietness, but knowing God's knowledge and wisdom is going to put some fire in you uh, to run for the Lord. Because as you look at your life, you begin to realize it's just not random. It's not just random. If, if, if I understand his knowledge and his wisdom... It's not random. You're not the Christian version of shrub number three in the school play. You know what I'm talking about? You know, how many of you have ever gone to like a little elementary school play with all these little kids and there aren't enough parts for everybody to have speaking parts and so they want everybody involved so they just start, they just start making up parts for everybody else and make them plants, right? So you're shrub number three, right? As a Christian, if you, if you ever feel like they had to find a spot for me, so here I am, I'm shrub number three. However, if you will look at God and ponder his wisdom and knowledge, you'll begin to realize that his plan, his agenda has a lot to do with you. And knowing that God has an eternal plan for you encourages you, even though you don't know the entire plan and you're not sure how it's all going to work out in the end, but it encourages you to run for the Lord like your life makes a difference. You know, I decided a long time ago to live my life like it matters because the scripture tells me that it does. Live for the glory of God, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just go for it in, in the Lord. It, it means that your life really matters. You are an eternal soul impacting other eternal souls in important ways. So, so you see God's plan in your personal life. You, you run harder. You, you trust more. And you rest better. Verse 33 goes on. The second part of that verse says, 
How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. Now, it does not say you're Christians and you have the Holy Spirit, so you know all of God's judgment and you can figure out all of his ways. It says the opposite, doesn't it? His ways are unfathomable, which means immeasurable, incomprehensible, inscrutable. His judgments are unsearchable, which means that you don't get to impeach God and, uh, you know, you, you can't figure out why God does what he does. You know, some people think that if I could just figure out why God's doing what he's doing, if I could just think long enough and hard enough, if I could just pray big enough and, and good enough, then, then, if, then I could figure out everything that God's doing in my life. And I would just say, no, I, I, that's probably not going to happen. You're probably not going to figure out everything that he's doing in your life. You may see some of it in hindsight uh, one day, but, but you're not going to, to know everything. And when you try to assume what God's doing, you try to think, you think, I've figured it out. I know what he's doing. You really set yourself up for being frustrated. You really do. Because it's probably whatever you figured out is probably not what he's trying to do. And then when what well, you think you figured out doesn't happen, then you get frustrated and say, I don't get it, God. I thought you were doing this. And he said, I never told you that. That was what you said. Here's the thing. You have to rely on God's character, not on your precognition of his plans. Verse 34 goes on to kind of more of the same humbling stuff. It says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? This is actually from Isaiah 40, verse 13. And, and it's actually repeated, repeated the same idea in multiple places throughout Scripture. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? I, I would say that the point here is that you don't know the mind of the Lord and you aren't his counselor. Uh, God, God's not checking with me for my, in, my input on any situation. Is, 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 is that okay with you, Dave, if I do that? It's not, that is not happening. You, you don't know God's unrevealed plans. You don't know his agenda for your life in the future. Now, why, why do I bring this up and make a point of it? It's because uh, some people treat other Christians and, and very often pastors as, like, sort of like they're the magic eight ball of God. Anybody remember the old magic eight balls? Remember those things? And uh, you'd ask a question, shake it, and turn it over. And then uh, that pyramid-shaped deal inside there would, would, uh, would float to the top and the window. And then it would say things like, try again, or absolutely, you know, those kind of things. Or not a chance, whatever it might say. And, and what happens is you, you keep doing it over and over and over again until you get the answer you want, right? <laughs> That's what we did. Well, sometimes people uh, treat people in spiritual leadership like this. You, you go to a pastor and you, you think to yourself on the way uh, to talk to them. You say, all right, Lord, just give them wisdom. And I, whatever they say, that's God's will. Then, then you go in and, you, and, and, and talk to them. Give them a little bit of information. You know, uh, even though life is far more complicated than you can tell them in five minutes and and, and, uh, and, and you tell them this stuff and you ask them a question and, and you want them to tell you what God's will is for you. And, and, and you see them as spiritual and, you know, maybe they're bringing out the word of God and they seem to have this insight in all this. And, and honestly, sometimes I'll tell you this, sometimes as pastors, pastors feed into that a little bit more, you know, as though they maybe know a little more than they do or and sometimes it just feels good to have people look up to you. And, you know, there's that temptation when you go to the hospital to visit somebody. You know, you want to put your cape on and be super pastor and, you know, walk in. 
to pray and as soon as you walk in, oh, thank the Lord, pastor's here, you know, and, and we sometimes it feeds our ego and, you know, we, we, it's not good, but sometimes we, we kind of feed into that. But let me just say this, here's a great way to use your pastor or any Christian for that matter, anybody you look up to that you go to for counsel, just remember this, they're counselors. You give them data, you give them information, they consider it as a spiritual godly person, and then they give you responses and things to think about, things to consider. But you got to remember this. You are accountable for the choice you make in response to all of those things. You're accountable. Scripture says, you need to remember, Scripture says there is wisdom in the multitude of counselors. So, don't put too much stock in someone because they, you think they're more spiritual than anybody else. And I would say be very, very wary if you go to somebody and they start begin telling you, they begin to tell you, this is absolutely God's will. I know what he wants you to do. Because listen, I want you to know this. God can talk to you. He can talk to you. He may give me a word of knowledge or a word of uh, wisdom of, about your life or something, but But when he does that, it's always going to be confirmation to what he's already said to you. He's not going to use me to to show up at your house and say, you know what? God told me you're supposed to go to Africa as a missionary. Pack your bags. No, but if he did tell you that, you might come to me and say, Pastor, this may sound weird, but I feel like God has said this to me. And then I'm able to say, listen, I thought it was very strange in my life, but I felt like God was saying something very similar to this. Here's what happened to me. And then it serves as a confirmation of what God is already saying to you. But you're accountable for your choice. Verse 45, let's keep reading. It says this. Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. This is from Job 41.11. Who has first given to God, and it shall be repaid to him. It's like, listen, uh, have you given to God, and then he had to repay you? In other words... Have you put God in debt to you in some way or another? This really highlights grace. Think about this for a second. Every single thing you have in life, everything, everything was given to you. No, no, I earned it. I earned it by the sweat of my brow. Whose brow? Your brow? Whose sweat? How'd you get that brow? How'd you get those arms and legs? How'd you get that skill? How'd you get the ability to do what you do? How'd you, how'd you get the mind to be able to retain that information? Oh, well, that was just given to me. Everything I have in life is a gift. Everything. And that's why an Olympic runner can, can run and win in the Olympics and then he or she can, at the end of the race, can point up toward God and, and point up toward heaven and say, God gets the glory. And then other people might mock them for it and they say, well, you're the one that ran. You're the one that worked hard. You're the one that trained every day to become a better runner. But, but then that person can say, yes, I did all those things, but God was the one who brought me into existence. He's the one who gave me legs. I just happened to have been born into a body that has that is physically superior to to a lot of other people. I was faithful with it, but ultimately God gets the glory. Always made me laugh on, you know, in in the NBA or something, when some seven footer dunks the ball and then, you know, gets up and celebrates like he did something like you're seven foot tall. You don't even have to jump. You know, you didn't make yourself seven feet tall. That's that was given to them. 
that's given. It's all from him. And, 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 and you know, what, I mean, what did I give to God that he didn't ultimately give to me first? That's the point of what he's saying. And this is good for us to realize because if I take things for granted, I set myself up for becoming proud or, or bitter. You know, we see this in marriages where there, there, be, there can be two people in a marriage that are really high quality spouse material on both sides in the marriage, but they're bitter at each other because they take everything the other person does for granted. They're, they're not thankful. They're, they see it as something that, uh, that's owed to them instead of seeing it as an offering of love. They feel entitled instead of grateful because the opposite of grateful is entitled. In, in the same sense, I, 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 I can begin to think, you owe me this, God. You, you owe me this. Why, why isn't blah, blah, blah happening in my life? You owe this to me. And I can get bitter because I didn't realize that everything that I have is a gift and that, that he owes me nothing. He will never be in my debt. I'm in his debt because everything I have has been given to me. Anything I give to God was given to me by God in the first place. Money, prosperity, ministry, anything. I'm a steward for, of everything in my life. And that, that, that to me highlights relationship. Stewardship is about relationship. Imagine a dad walking through the, the store with his son or his daughter, you know, little four or five-year-old son or daughter and, and uh, Mother's Day is coming up. It actually, it's coming up here. And so they're walking through the store and he says, here, kiddo, here's some money. Get your mom something really special for Mother's Day. Now think about that. Or, or you know, it might even be the mom walking through this and the kid says, I want to get you something for Mother's Day. And the mom gives them money so they can buy, them, buy something for her for Mother's Day using her money. You know, I mean... Why? You have to give them money to make the purchase. So what's the point of doing that? Well, it's because it's about the relationship between that child and his or her mother. It's not about the money. It's not about the gift. It's about that child being able to express love and and be in a closer relationship with the mother. So why does God give us things that we, just so that we might be able to give them back to him? God gives us things that, uh, that, that we... That, that might, excuse me, God gives us, gives us things that might, uh, that, get this right. God gives us things that we might be able to give it back to him because it's all about relationship. We're building relationships. He doesn't need me to do anything for him. He wants me to do it because he loves me, because it's part of, of a, this living, growing relationship with him. Then in verse 36, he says, for from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, this is saying three different things when it, when it says from him, through him, and to him. The first one is from him are all things. And that just means he created everything. God is the only thing that is not created. The, the, the big fancy theological term for this that people use for this, I'm going to just teach it to you so that you can use it someday and sound smart. Uh, but it's divine aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y, divine aseity. And that just means self-existence. 
God exists in and of himself. His existence does not flow from anything else. He is not created. He doesn't begin to exist at some point in history. Nothing sustains him. Nothing causes him. He's simply self-existence. That's divine aseity. God's the only thing that's not from something else. So, so, so from him are all things. If you could somehow strip away the universe and all that is in it, every spiritual being, everything that is seen and unseen, everything that's been created by God, what would be left? Just God. Just God. And that's how it would be for all eternity. That would be all there is. Everything is from God. He created all things. Then it says all things are through Him. And you might go, okay, well, if everything's from you, then why is everything through you? What's the point of saying both of these things? Because they kind of seem very similar. So why not, why not pick one? Well, I think the phrase through him really is a specific reference to Jesus. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I'm going to show you some scriptures to tell you why I say that. Um, the, because these scriptures that I'm going to read, they talk about the Father creating and the Son being the one through, him, through whom all things are created. Uh, so John 1.3 says this, All things were created through him. It's talking about the Word, which is Jesus. All things are created through Him, and without Him nothing was created that was created. So all things were made through the Son. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and, uh, excuse me, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. It's interesting. This verse has... Um, all of these concepts here, that it came from him, through him, and for him. Uh, so they were created through Jesus, because Jesus is the topic of Colossians 1. 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all, are all things. That's what we read in, just wrote, read in Romans eleven thirty six. from him. And, and for him we exist. There is the for him part. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All things are from God the Father and through Jesus all things exist. Uh, there, there's, there's more. Hebrews 1-2. But in these last days, He, and speaking of God, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So, so that's the through whom. Then, then, then it gets into, to me, what is the most interesting part of the to Him part. By, by the way, what he's talking about here, uh, what we're talking, especially the from him, through him, is something that uh, theologians would call the, the economic trinity. And you think economic, you think money, but that's not what it means. It just means that the, that the different uh, parts, the different members of the trinity tend to do different things and have different functions. So the Father cre- creates, it's created through the Son, the Spirit indwells. Uh, the believer, there's different things, but that's just another throw these theological terms out there and you can repeat them when you're having coffee with somebody and they'll think, wow, they're, they're really, really smart. Uh, but uh, even, even when you're like me and you just fake it. Um, so anyway, it says that to him are all things. So what does to him mean? To him means that the end, that the, uh, that the end goal of creation is God. The end purpose of everything is the Lord. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's pleasure is the purpose of the things that are happening in my life. 
I was created to, for his pleasure. Revelation has a verse that talks about that. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting for, for him, for whom all things are for him, and, and by him uh, all things exist. For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. God is bringing them all in for him and for his glory. We, we read Colossians 1.16 earlier, but the last part of the verse said this, all things were created through him and for him. We were created for him. And here, here's the thought for me. If all of this is for God and his, for his glory, if, if the purpose of, the, of everything was for God and for his glory, does that mean that I have to pick between my good and God's glory in my life? Because I, th- I think many people think that's the choice they have to make. They think it's a choice between what's good for me and the glory of God. But I think it's, I think it's more complicated than that. And let me just try to unpack it really quickly. There, there's one side of the coin, uh, uh, like, like where Jesus says, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He says you have to die to yourself daily. So there is a sense where I'm dying to myself. However, that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is this. Jesus said, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So, so he's saying, what you're giving up is the, is the life that abandons the purpose of your creation. You're, you're giving up a life of rebellion against the God who made you for himself so that you might have a life with God who made you for himself. You're giving up the nothing life for the everything life. So there is a sacrifice involved, but let's be honest, the sacrifices we make as Christians are, are really nothing. Oh Lord, I sacrificed fornication for you. Okay, but your eyes are open now, so that's not really a sacrifice, it's just wisdom because life really is better because of it. Lord, I sacrificed ungodly friendships and sin for you. Well, all you're doing is giving up death for life. We're dying to the to life that does not give glory to God to walk in the fullness of life where we accomplish our full purpose and our full meaning uh, and all of that sort of thing. The Christian life involves a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice of nothingness for everything. You know, Jesus said, and you, you know the verse, he said in John 15, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I love the way he words it. Because if you read it differently, you could say, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, he says, if you, you want to do nothing with your life, well, go ahead. Just live life apart from me. In the end, it will amount to nothing. However, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. So I, I'm giving up the things that amount to, to zilch for the things that amount to the glory of God. And... Uh, and, and, you know, some people are bothered, skeptics particularly are bothered that with, the, with this idea that we should give all glory to God. They actually attack the idea of God uh, by, by accusing him of being arrogant. Maybe you've heard somebody like this and say, well, how arrogant of God to want worship, to demand praise and worship. He must be, an, you know, an egomaniacal maniac. You know, he's got to be crazy. He's just, he's got to, must be arrogant. But here, the difference between me worshiping God versus worshiping, say, a person, you know, a celebrity or whatever. It's really simple. It's that God is worthy of worship. You know, God, worshiping God versus worship, 
worshiping like a hamburger. Well, God's worthy of worship. God versus a cow. God versus a football team. God is worthy of worship, and they're not. God's worthy of worship. So, to, 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 and to understand that I was wor- created for Him, that means to not worship God would be to live a lie. To, to base my life on a lie. To walk in rebellion against the one who made me for himself. And I like Psalm 115, 1, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name, because I glory in his glory. But when I glory in my own glory, now I'm not abiding in Christ, and now my life amounts to nothing. It's empty glory. When I glory in his glory, now I'm riding the wave of God's wonderfulness and God's goodness in life. See, see that, that's a heart cry, and that's how it comes off in Paul's writing. He, he writes, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now I want you to imagine what he felt as he wrote those words and, and ask ourselves, do I feel this? Is God's glory the highest priority in my life? Is God's pleasure more important than my own pleasure? Do I, do I find joy in Him and in His glory? Do I find joy in glorifying Him in all that I do? Is it comforting to me uh, to, uh, to, that, that God's glory will actually come through and be made evident even through my hardships? Not just that somehow God will work this out and it will be better for me, but that even in my hardships, even if it doesn't go the way I want it to, that he's going to be glorified. Does that bring comfort to me? I mean, I have eternal joy coming. So what am I worried about now? You know, I, I often think to myself as Christians, what are we so afraid of? Knowing, knowing what's coming, knowing who he is. What are we so afraid of? And instead, I can be like, Lord, be glorified in whatever is going on in my life right now. What, whatever struggle I'm in, Lord, show me how to glorify you in this thing because that is the purpose of my life. And that's when I find myself abiding and bearing much fruit and finding my joy in, in him. Here's where I'll end. Uh, when, when my life is, is really honestly focused on God's glory, And I mean, moment by moment, day by day, God's glory in my marriage, God's glory in my parenting, God's glory in my job, God's glory in in all those things. When, When that's what my life is like, then that changes everything. The way I handle situations in which I find myself totally changes when His glory is the focus of my life. When I'm saying, I want to see God glorified. Not, not I want to see myself benefit. Not that I want to get my way, but when my focus becomes I want God to be glorified, it changes the way I approach this everything because it moves me away from a narcissistic self-focus to a mind that's focused on the Lord and a heart that's free to bring glory to Him. And in the process of that, you know what? It's like Jesus said, you do lose yourself. You do lose yourself but you gain so much more. You gain so much more. It's a great trade-off. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just, I just ask, Lord, you'd help us to learn in our hearts to, to, uh, to love your glory more, to, to worship you because you're worth it, to worship you because we exist for your pleasure. 
Help us to see all of these things so that we'll remember that, that all, of the, all of these things are not about us, but, but they're all about you. Lord, help us to walk in peace because we know that we can trust your infinite knowledge and, and we can trust your unlimited wisdom. Uh, and Lord, because of that, we know we have, we have nothing to fear. Help us to walk in all, these, all of these things so that your name would be glorified in our lives. Lord, let that be our highest goal, our highest calling is that the name of Jesus, the, that the God we serve would be glorified in every circumstance, in every situation. And we thank you, God, for what you're going to do. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.